Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're glad you're with us this Tuesday. We've got a very interesting show for you, a couple of real interesting guests to talk about some exciting topics. One we're going to talk about is EDI. What I knew many years ago is electronic data interchange. Uh, we're going to kind of get an update of where that is in the current day and age. And then we're going to be talking about uh, shipbuilding out of the Newport News shipbuilding arena. But before we get to our guests, I would like to talk with Lou Wise, our co-host, who is up in New Jersey. Lou, how are you doing today? Well, we had our first snowstorm, so now I start wearing my uh, winter coat. (laughs) But the short-sleeved Hawaiians will live on forever. Uh, Everything is fine, and uh, so why don't we uh, get uh, right to it. Uh, last uh, week, our, our postscript for our show last week, uh, we had our uh, uh, our international correspondent uh, with Chad McRae, chief economist of uh, NAM, uh, discussing manufacturing as it's going around, going on around the world uh, uh, this November, including some discussions on Brexit, with uh, our international reaction to. Uh, Mr. Trump, our president-elect, uh, the automobile industry outlook, and the purchasing, the purchasing, the purchasing managers' in, indices for almost 18 major uh, global record, uh, reports around the world. Uh, Royce Lowe reporting from uh, uh, Europe. Norbert Orr, the international international gentleman, and. Uh, Chong Wang from uh, China, reporting on uh, China and other Asian uh, areas. Uh, it's a well-rounded uh, view of what's going on around the world. Bottom line, things are getting better. Um, in, in spite of the election uh, chaos that has turned out uh, here in the United States, and maybe some lumps and bumps around the world as a result, also. So that's uh, that's the way that show went. You can go to Manufacturing Talk Radio, which is mfgtalkradio.com. News item today: Well, Philadelphia had a surprise this morning. Their nuclear plant that's uh, just 60 miles away from uh, Philadelphia automatically turned out turned off due to a problem. Um, I can't imagine what problem it is. They're not talking a whole lot other than the fact that they uh, claimed that they had a turbine control system located at a non-nuclear side, and technicians were working to repair it. As of now, it is not repaired. There are 60,000 homes involved in Monmouth and Ocean Counties combined. That's a lot of people. Um, that's why the internet is good. They might be able to hear us on their cell phones as opposed to uh, on their computers that are plugged into electricity. Uh, Next item. 
president-elect, and gee, it seems like I'm talking politics, and I'm really not. I, I'm just <laughs> trying to def- defend ourselves the way we need to be defending ourselves. President-elect Trump claims he's going to bring back jobs to America. Wrong, false dream. He's daydreaming. It's never going to happen. However, there are interesting things happening in this country in regards to jobs. Uh, Apple Computer, they are the largest uh, manufacturer uh, in this country. They have 80,000 people uh, employed just here in the United States. They support 69 suppliers of product that they need to make their uh, equipment. And it's it impacts 33 states that are producing these parts. And, of course, there's hundreds of thousands of software developers who also write the apps for iPhones and iPads. To give you an example uh, where jobs are growing, in Texas, where Apple has a plant, uh, they have now 6,000 employees. Seven years ago, there was only 2,000. So it sounds like we're growing jobs, and that's part of the solution that we have here is that we don't have to bring back jobs. We have to create new industries, expand industries, retain, retrain, and regain our employees. So, Mr. President-elect, get out of the false dream mode. That said, um, Tim, back to you. Thanks, Lou. Um, appreciate the updates. If any of you want to go and listen to any of those past shows, including last week's show, you can do that at mfgtalkradio.com, where we have an entire library of every, every show we have ever done since November of 2013. In this show, we have Peter Edlin. Peter is Senior Vice President of Global Product Marketing with Dice Central. They are a cutting-edge web-hosted EDI solution, and Peter's going to bring us up to date. My memories of EDI were back 40 years ago in the banking industry, so I'll be interested to see where EDI is today. Peter, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Nice to be here, Tim and Lou. Thank you. Why don't you give our listeners kind of a quick rundown of who and what Die Central is, and feel free to shamelessly plug your company and your website address. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Uh, DI Central is a um, is a, a managed services solution for what has been traditionally called EDI, or electronic data interchange, as you pointed out, which has been around for many, many years. And what has changed over the years is that we've moved from the notion of having technology behind the firewall within on-premise uh, and cons- expensive consultants to maintain that, um, to uh, moving everything to the cloud. Uh, but just to sort of ground everybody in what we do for a living, we basically take disparate data from systems, primarily the MRP in the manufacturing world, and uh, the signals that you're getting from customers, for example, purchase orders, are being sent to you electronically through these EDI systems. And what DI Central does uh, for a living is essentially help manufacturers uh, handle the disparity of data between different customers and integrate that data with their MRP systems so those systems can run more effectively and more efficiently. And um, we do that in a, in a managed services environment, like I mentioned, in the cloud. And uh, our revenue model is based on 
uh, one-time setup fees and transactional fees based on the, the type of data that's the, the volume of data that's moving through the network. And we're a, we're a global company. Uh, we started uh, about 16 years ago. We're located in Houston, Texas as our corporate offices. Uh, but we have offices uh, throughout the United States uh, in Wisconsin. Uh, we have operations in Canada and throughout Asia as well. Great. Appreciate uh, Peter. Give our uh, listeners an idea. Give, you know, give us a problem-solution scenario. Um, what's the most common use of EDI, Peter? Well, the, uh, obviously the most common use that we see um, are manufacturers having to sort of comply uh, with the notion of electronic communications uh, via their systems with their customers. And the, the use case scenario that typically occurs is a manufacturer recently wins a bid with a large customer. Uh, and I can use CPG as an example, a consumer product goods manufacturer who wins a Walmart uh, opportunity. Uh, Walmart uh, in the retail space is a low-margin business. It's very, very challenging, uh, particularly now, given that uh, uh, the bricks and mortars uh, are sort of we're flipping from bricks and mortars to sort of online. But the reality is these these orders that are these replenishment orders to the distribution centers um, or the stores directly, uh, they're not phone calls being made these days. There's no nobody on the buyer's not on the phone calling up the rep saying I need ten more of these shirts or shoes. Uh, the manufacturers have got to take in electronic signals. So typically, what happens is is that uh, when the when the when the manufacturer receives the first order, it is electronic, and there's a requirement. It's part of the compliance program that are built in uh, for these manufacturers to comply with, and that that EDI is, is is one of the several things that they need to comply with. And oftentimes, what happens uh, for those new manufacturers to the world of EDI, they will ask the retailers. Uh, in this example, uh, Walmart, any recommendations on, on how to go about being compliant? And oftentimes the retailer will make a recommendation of several service providers uh, that can assist that manufacturer in being connected up. Now, of course, once you're set up and, and sort of being able to receive uh, electronic transactions, uh, there's there's these smaller solutions that allow the manufacturers to use a simple web browser and receive purchase orders send back advanced ship notices, which is another sort of electronic document in the retail space, um, as well as the uh, automotive, and we see it in other industries as well. But what we'll start to see is the uh, the volume goes up, the requirement for integration goes up as well. So the next thing we often see with manufacturers is, how do I leverage the data that's coming to me and going from me to my customers in my MRP system? And that's a level of integration at that point where we have to integrate the data uh, directly from that customer directly into the MRP. And a lot of the MRPs, the return on investment, does not really occur unless you start feeding it data, uh, particularly from the supply chain where you get the visibility and you get the automated processes that the MRP is really uh, designed to perform. So DI Central essentially uh, manages that process from beginning to end, meaning integration into the MRP. And then, of course, provide a tremendous amount of visibility to the network uh, online and then all the professional services that go around that. So that's sort of the typical scenario. Okay, and when you're talking about responding to the customer's needs more quickly, you're really talking about the manufacturer responding to the buyer's 
their customer, I'm sorry, like Walmart. That's who we're, they're responding to. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's the demand signals. And as you know, we're a just-in-time sort of society these days, <laughs> given our iPhones and our ability to quickly uh, um, you know, obtain services and products. So one of the things that obviously happens is these signals, um, and they often are in these automated replenishment cycles at the retailer, as the store replen- uh, depreciates, you know, kind of the, the, the inventory goes down, they'll send out replenishment signals automatically through the network, the EDI network, to the suppliers or the manufacturers to replenish a distribution center or directly to a store. And those replenishment signals are, are basically draw, driven through an automated process. So at the end of the day, what you really end up doing is just managing exceptions uh, because everything becomes automated, and it becomes, uh, you know, one of the big things I talked about at the beginning was the low-margin business of retail, and uh, they have to have everything automated, and that's one of one of the several things that they automate in the supply chain. Okay, uh, Peter, let me ask you uh, a question. Um, EDI has always been, or it's been around a very long time, as you stated earlier, and. Uh, We've been talking about how EDI works for an organization like Walmart and other types of companies like that, particularly in the retail market. Um, I'm from the other side of the world. I'm from uh, manufacturing, hard manufacturing. Uh, uh, All Metals and Forge is a Ford shop. Uh, we do use technology uh, where, where appropriate and where we can. My question is that on a custom-produced part, um, is is DI uh, Central capable of creating a program where it is customizable on the product on the fly so that information could go back and forth uh, between customer and vendor on custom-produced parts, or is this – mainly when you have generic type products? That's a good question. Now, we've, we've, we've seen custom orders uh, be created uh, within applications that are able to manage the complexity of the bill of materials. And then, of course, that, that bill of materials can be transmitted through the EDI um, environment. Um, so as you kind of use a collaborative tool to sort of design and, and come up with the specs, and then any bill of materials that need to be developed, all of that can be transmitted through a standard uh, data set uh, to the manufacturers, uh, depending on if you're sort of going to raw materials, if you're going to secondary sources of, of, of product to help build components. All of that can be done. So, yeah, I would highly, highly, highly agree with you that, you know, although, you know, you kind of look at traditional sort of, you know, products that are not customized, such as a shoe or a, a shirt or, you know, a watch. These things are sort of commodity-type things that you kind of push through the supply chain fairly quickly. The customized side of it is two steps. You have a collaborative environment for building out the actual spec, and then you have our network, if you will, to take once it's a final spec, we can transmit the information off to secondary suppliers for component building. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, aspect uh, that, I think that a lot of uh, our listeners and manufacturers uh, could take advantage of in uh, even, the, as you mentioned, for example, a watch. Uh, you know, a watch is a commodity once it's been made once. 
and it's been now made 10,000 times at the same parts over and over again. But um, the the question is, can it uh, be done on a one-of uh, type of job, uh, or could you still use a collaborative program to create the document that would then be later EDI uh, forwarded mm. after all the proper uh, uh, review of documentation and information, statistics, and so on. Yeah, I agree. I, I think what's happened is this notion of structured and unstructured data being combined together. I think it's clearly a a, a, a way of the way things are going now. So the unstructured world is sort of, as you mentioned, sort of the design, the specs, all the documents that are associated with bringing up this custom product. And then the structured data is is sort of the supply chain signals to actually order the parts and the components to sort of drive all of that manufacturing. Um, so you have a two-step process there. Typically. Right. Uh, I would suggest at this point that you might want to give, because uh, you may have struck a chord with some of our listeners, you might want to give us your uh, URL address at this point uh, and direct any of our listeners to uh, either sales or customer service or, or yourself. Absolutely. Sure. You can, uh, for those listeners that would like to learn a little bit more about DI Central, you can go to our website, www.dicentral all one word, dot com. And you can also email sales at dicentral.com if you have any inquiries, and uh, someone will be happy to help you out. Very good. Thank you. You're That's welcome. great, Peter. And for those of you who need the phonetics, it's the letter D, the letter I, the word central.com. Peter, how far upstream does EDI go? You were talking about the manufacturer ordering parts. How integrated have have you seen the current, what they're calling manufacturing 4.0 world at this point? Yeah, it's starting to, as we kind of go through and we look at, you know, I'll just look at it kind of like Internet of Things, uh, 3D printing, these kind of technologies, uh, big data, these are just three things that come to mind that are affecting sort of how we sort of drive supply chain data going forward. And I, I got a feeling that at the end of the day, uh, the automation uh, that is required in order to be competitive, both in the manufacturing and maybe even in the retail space, is, is really going to uh, drive these technologies forward. And I can tell you right now, just from the basic sort of inquiries that we're getting here at DI Central, uh, there's definitely a demand, and I'll just use the e-commerce world, and you can kind of see what's going on with e-commerce. Uh, you know, Black Fridays are, in fact, it's predicted that we're going to have a reduction Black Friday of about 4% of sales uh, in terms of, um, you know, brick and mortar. And, and that's because everybody's going to be shifting as this trend kind of continues to online. But what we see with uh, with retailers and other organizations that are working with manufacturers is this notion of, 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 of dropship and getting signals directly from the consumer who are interfacing with these e-commerce sites as they um, you might find a clothing uh, retailer who now decides that they want to get in the business of selling TVs and it's easy to do on a website uh, I might not agree agree with it from a branding perspective but the fact is you can expand the number of SKUs and now all of a sudden you're interfacing with a TV manufacturer or distributor 
to fulfill that that consumer demand. And those signals all have to be managed. And in our world, uh, we we call this the dropship world. And as you expand SKUs as a retailer, there's a there's a large chance that the manufacturers are going to have to now kind of retool up in terms of being able to handle bulk shipments to a distribution center, but now go off and start fulfilling items one at a time to consumers. And those signals all have to be managed. Uh, from a retailer's perspective, uh, having a manufacturer drop ship to a consumer directly, um, you know, there's, the retailer's still on the hook for the customer service experience. However, the fulfillment of that is now being shifted directly to the manufacturer, which hasn't traditionally been done that way. And the manufacturer needs to be able to provide real-time signals back to the retailer, ensuring a service level that needs to be maintained. And at the end of the day, from a consumer's point of view, there's an expectation that I'm going to get that product from Target or Walmart.com in the expected time frame. And when it doesn't happen or if there's some sort of issue, um, it's not the manufacturer that's going to be on the hook um, with respect to a customer service ding. It's going to be Target or Walmart. So these collaborative experiences that go back and forth between uh, the retailer and the manufacturer in this example are essentially electronic signals for maintaining inventory from the manufacturer so that the retailer's website can be uh, updated in an accurate manner, uh, making sure there's real-time inventory updates and feeds so there's no stockouts when you go and click on a uh, an item in the e-commerce site. And, of course, uh, the purchase order signals back to the uh, manufacturer to make sure that they're shipping those products. So it's, it's, it's a lot of stuff that kind of goes on in what I consider to be a more aggressive environment now for, for e-commerce. Peter, one of the questions I have on this, uh, you know, the consumer getting the one-off product, you know, that's been around the automotive industry for years where you could – order a particular seating uh, color or an interior color or an exterior paint job. I mean, they did a lot of them, but you could in some ways customize the car. In this world of EDI back to the manufacturer and the manufacturer having to be responsive to the retailer who's trying to respond to the customer, are we ever going to get down to the level of, gee, I want a paisley toaster or I want the blue toaster and all you carry are red and black? Do you see that in the future? I do, and I see this in what we, you know, it's it's the item management, uh, essentially the product attributes, which are expanding um, dramatically. And the requirements from the retailer to the manufacturers that the manufacturers have got to be able to expand their product attributes, meaning being more descriptive. Uh, we're insatiable for information as consumers, and we also would like to have those options. And I believe at the end of the day, the way that we, you know, sort of create uh, these configurations, if you will, particularly these customizable websites, we're able to configure just about anything. Once the order is configured, the order will then be, you know, sent electronically by EDI off to the manufacturer to uh, be produced or selected from a uh, inventory pool. Um, and that's so. I, I think it's uh, it's it's now it's it's happening. I see it. I see it happening all the time, and I think the expanded attribute set is going to help. It is difficult and challenging, particularly if you're, you know, you're bringing up new products and you're retiring old ones, and you've got to be able to synchronize that that data, if you will, or the, the product information with uh, the various customers. And that synchronization has to happen at least at least now. It has to happen in real time almost. 
um, or you can miss sales. And uh, or you know, and that's that's sort of the one thing that I find interesting is is that just how fast things are moving. It's very fast. And our network, uh, just selfishly, the the DI Central uh, network uh, in a managed services configuration allows us to be elastic and, and flexible enough to be able to handle these requirements around speed and configuration. I, I presume uh, that this is uh, EDI is a, a two-way communication. For example, uh, a, a customer sends the order to the vendor, the vendor receives it, an acknowledgement goes out to the customer and says we received your order and we'll notify you when the goods are shipped. When the goods are shipped, then another uh, EDI communication goes back out to the customer telling them that it's shipped. I'm presuming that that's the way it works. Yeah, it's exactly the way it works. It, it kind of works like a conversation between two people. There's a give and take, and you got to kind of, you know, the, the beautiful part about language, and in this case here, it's it's a very disparate language between systems. And uh, the iCentral sits in the middle and manages that disparity because each data set from SAP to Oracle and is is challenging. So we actually it's a it's a it's a language and it's a back and forth. And clearly, each of those data sets that are going back and forth uh, can be used to drive automation in the back of the MRP. Uh, these signals that are being sent uh, either through outbound uh, or inbound um, have a level of uh, of data that, that can be set up and configured in your MRPs to drive automation. And all of this goes out over the Internet, is that correct? Or yeah, is this... yeah, exactly. As I was talking to Tim earlier before the show, and, and the fact is, is that, you know, the, the, the transport mechanism, the Internet has made it more cost-effective. Uh, to, to move data back and forth. And, and also, mm -hmm. I think just the fact that in a managed services environment, you're not managing, you know, an infrastructure. You're not managing a service level around sort of uptime availability. Um, you're able to outsource all of that to a third party, such as DI Central, to manage all of that communication and infrastructure. And then, of course, the process of professional services, just onboarding a community of suppliers or customers you know, taking the time and effort to deal with 15 to 20 customers who are driving requirements for EDI, and oh, by the way, changing those things once a year for various reasons. It's expensive to maintain a staff of professionals that know what they're doing. So the managed services configuration is definitely an advantage, and there's a nice return on investment, particularly if you're going to integrate into your MRP, uh, where you can really get more return out of, out of that, that piece of software. Well, Peter, I was going to ask you just how uh, difficult or crazy it is. You're trying to interface with MRP systems and ERP systems, and there's obviously more than one solution out there. There are some legacy systems out there. There's new systems out there that are hosted. There are other ones that are cloud-based. What's your biggest challenge out there, trying to get your guys to write the code to talk to all of these uh, other software packages? Well, obviously, uh, we'd love to talk to everybody. And, you know, for all practical purposes, uh, we, we have the ability to do what we call any-to-any. Any. And that allows us to communicate with any any um, any communication protocol, any uh, file format, um, our ability to kind of work with any ERP or MRP. And now that's, that sounds like a bunch of marketing, 
but the reality is is that it, there is some technology behind it, and, and you have to be able to, um, number one, understand sort of what the requirements are to begin with. So there's a level of professional services that go along with the service. So in other words, getting sort of an understanding of what ERP or MRP, what file formats, what communication requirements are necessary uh, on the demand side. And um, and oftentimes what we do is a, is a we have our own proprietary adapters and solutions that are of and used with primarily the top 10 to 15 MRPs and ERPs. Um, and then every now and then we kind of get a uh, non sort of uh, or some sort of proprietary ERP, and then what we'll do is we'll create a a uh, a, a flat file sort of communication mechanism uh, to be able to communicate directly with that proprietary system. And, and it's more of a standard uh, lowest common denominator file format to move data in and out of that uh, ERP. Right. Well, Peter, thank you for being on the show. We appreciate you giving us an update of where EDI is today and how it can be used. And we're going to kind of follow GI Central and see what you folks are up to, but we appreciate you being on the show with us. Well, it's been my pleasure, and uh, to the audience, uh, DI Central's uh, available for any consultation or any, uh, any any help you might need in the future. You want to give that URL again? Absolutely. You can reach uh, DI Central at www.dicentral. That's David India Central one word dot com, or you can reach out sales at dicentral dot com via email. We've been speaking with Peter Adlin, who's Senior Vice President of Global Product Marketing at DI Central, and we're going to be talking with Patrick Ryan. Patrick is with uh, Newport News Shipbuilding, which is part of Huntington Ingalls Industries. We'll be right back to talk with Patrick after these commercial messages. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. How do you keep your business humming? Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment? Components, MRO supplies repair services, or even raw materials. 30 years ago, you would have turned to the Thomas Register. Today, those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com, industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery. You can easily find that local machine shop, national distributor, OEM, or any supplier having the right quality certification. Fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason thomasnet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it, and it's all free. Go to thomasnet.com today and see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're speaking with Patrick Ryan, who is with uh, Newport News Shipbuilding. That is a, a part of the Huntington Ingalls Industries. Patrick is an engineering manager with Newport News Shipbuilding, and I'm always fascinated with what is going on uh, you know, when we had a, a pre-conversation with Patrick. 
who's talking about building these, you know, the bottoms of ships and moving them in, in weights that are difficult for me to get my head around. So be interesting to have Peter on the show here and talk a little about what's happening with Newport News. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Thank you, Peter. I'm sorry. Free conversation with you, uh, and uh, I am always fascinated by something as large as what you guys build. So, what's the biggest challenge that you've run across in Newport News building the behemoth ships you folks put together? Well, I like to tell people that uh, nuclear-powered aircraft carriers are the most complex machines mankind has ever endeavored to build. And uh, so, yeah, they're they're full of challenges, but, but that's what we do here every day is we face those and, and, and tackle them, and we have a great track record of delivering high-quality ships to the U.S. Navy. So what, so what is augmented reality? I'm having a hard time. I can get my head around big boats. I can't get my head around augmented reality and virtual reality and everything in between. Yeah, absolutely. So that's uh, that's actually a very a common question. Uh, there was a, a survey that I saw earlier this year that stated about 15% of the American population understood what augmented reality is. Now that came out before Pokemon Go, so maybe that's, that number's changed a little bit since that <laughs> game has come out. <laughs> but um, maybe it's best to start with kind of a, 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 the basics between the two. So virtual reality is much more commonly known. It's been around for a couple of decades now. And virtual reality, you are immersing yourself in a computer-generated world, uh, very commonly used for uh, design um, times when they... Um, the product hasn't been built yet. Um, video games, another example of virtual reality, and with kind of the explosion of these head-mounted displays you see on, on television commercials, um, that's what those are as well. So that's uh, putting a display on your on your head, wearables, um, where you can see into a computer land. It takes you to another place, and you can play games or whatever. Augmented reality is a cousin uh, in that, that it's a visualization technology, but it's the opposite. So with augmented reality, you're pulling digital information out of the computer and placing it in your real-world environment. So when we talk about augmented reality, and I don't have an example to show people, the example I typically explain to them is that uh, yellow line in the football game that tells you where the first down line is. Right? That's digital information presented to you. Um, the information is how many yards to gain. Um, and it's there for your enjoyment, of course. Uh, but here at Newport News Shipbuilding, we've been painting yellow lines in our shipyard for about six years now. Um, Never to tell our shipbuilders, you know, how many yards to gain for first downs, um, <laughs> but instead, you know, inspect this joint, weld this piece, inspect this component, you know, make sure this is there, that's not. And uh, an augmented reality is that, that technology that we use to display that computer information into the real world. And we do this through mobile devices, through tablets, um, whether we're talking Samsung or, or iPads. Uh, and then uh, we're starting to see uh, head-mounted displays for augmented reality come onto the market. Uh, and that that also will be a big game changer for us. So Patrick, are your engineers then looking at an assembly on their laptop, and things are lit up on the laptop showing them inspect that well, check this valve? Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, so basically, we use the camera on the tablet device uh, as kind of our you know video camera into a football game, if you will, if you want to stay with that example. Um, so we point the camera to pile of parts and assembly uh, a, a, a large lift, um, a compartment on the ship that's, that's been outfitted. Uh, and the camera um, 
searches for a recognizable image, and that establishes in our engineering parlance a Cartesian origin, basically where is 000 in space, and then it overlays digital information on top of the world. And as you move the tablet around, you're looking at a computer or a, a camera feed that's right. superimposed with digital information. So what we'd like to say is we want to point the device at a pile of parts and have the pile of parts tell you what to do. I noticed in some of the uh, notes that we were looking at that you talk about the use of lengthy blueprints. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm used to seeing blueprints that are three feet by four feet. Are you telling me yours are larger than that? <laughs> yeah, we have the, we put the third dimension in there, so they might be three feet by four feet by one feet, right? <laughs> because they're hundreds and hundreds of pages thick, because uh, because what we're building is so complex. And you know, at, right. at the shipyard, I mean, that's 130 years of of culture, and that's you know how we've built ships forever. We've relied on that paper documentation, uh, and augmented reality is very disruptive to that role. Um, but what we what we found is that it's not disruptive to the skill craft of our skilled shipbuilders, um, that when people use augmented reality, they're still being ship fitters or pipe fitters or electricians, and they're still doing their, their skill craft um, and getting value from their work and increasing the value that they provide to the company. We're just taking away their reliance on that paper documentation. And for a long time, we've, we've gone around trying to tell people that that's not value added as part of the process, and that's, that's met with skepticism, but, but really it's mission critical not value added. You never pay somebody to sit around eight hours a day and do nothing but read paper. You want them to do something, and augmented reality attacks that portion which is not value added, that reliance on paper documentation. So let me ask you, Patrick, one of the uh, topics that, uh, or, or several of the topics that uh, Tim and I talked to our audience about is about skill gap issues, about um, being able to get people to come to work who have enough training, uh, it, and obviously building a ship, it takes years, and I'm sure you'll correct me. Nope. How many years does it How many years does it take to build a uh, nuclear ship? Uh, depends on what nuclear ship we're talking about, but uh, new, a new construction aircraft carrier takes about seven years. Seven years. So you have, uh, and you have 20,000 people that work at Newport News. That's correct. And so, in fact, has your... Uh, employment staff uh, picked up? Have you had issues with skill gaps because people are uh, retiring after 136 years? Um, give me some insight into your employee and how the employee is affected by augmented reality. Sure, that's a great question. Um, so, of course, and like, like everyone else across the industry, uh, retaining talent is, remains a challenge and Millennials and new generations that come into the workforce um, don't look at it the way folks that have been here longer do. They look to, to maybe jump jobs more frequently. Um, and when you bring them into an environment that um, is seen as antiquated, uh, relying on paper, um, that can be a challenge for any company. Um, but um, what we found and what we thought was that augmented reality would be really greatly adopted by the 18 to 24-year-old crowd. But the initial concern was that people with more experience would reject it. But that's not what we found at all. In fact, what we found is great adoption across the generational spectrum, and it is actually really helpful for engaging um, a more seasoned, um, experienced employee working with uh, a new hire um, because they can look at that screen together and talk through things. And, um, and I think 
that all comes down to what we just talked about in the prior question. It all comes down to the fact that augmented reality does not attack the skill. It doesn't attack the value in, in which that skilled um, craftsman brings to the deck plate. Uh, instead, it, rely, it, it attacks that um, reliance on paper. Um, so, uh, you know, your question is spot on. It, it's really helpful to, to attract new people into the business, to retain people that are here, to do communication um, from more experienced folks to, to people that have just started their careers. Well, that's interesting, and I'm glad to hear it, because uh, over the last three years that uh, Tim and I have been uh, on manufacturing talk radio, that's not, that's not the usual that we hear. We hear uh, X number of tens of millions of people who are capable of work and who are capable of being retrained uh, they don't even know clearly how to go about getting that training when there really is a lot, a lot of vocational training, uh, schools, uh, environments being set up. Uh, we even know of a company, of, of a company who got four manufacturing companies within his local uh, area, got together, and they built their own um, school for teaching mm -hmm. Uh, young folk to uh, be able to use their hands. And in essence, they wound up building their own new workforce. So there's been a lot of this type of issues. So I'm glad to hear that uh, the, the gray hairs are beginning to uh, really buy into uh, all of the technology. Yeah, and if, if I may, I'd like to comment on the, that school, um, you know, issue. I mean, at Newport New Shipbuilding, we have an apprentice school um, that's that's coming up on their 100th anniversary, where we do exactly what you, you've discussed, where we train our own shipbuilders within our own workforce. We're not necessarily um, going outside um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To, to expect people coming in with those jobs, and augmented reality is, is um, going to be part of that school as well. We've got very close relationships with the school. We're talking about getting some of our training into their hands already so that they can do um, in the classroom to, to train people. I have a cute story, just as an aside, that I heard last night on the radio. Um, a 90-year-old woman sent a text message to her family members inviting them for Thanksgiving dinner this week. And she typed one of the numbers incorrectly, and it went to a 27-, 28-year-old man who thought his grandmother was sending him a text. And then he texted back and said, we'd love to be there. Anyway, somewhere along the line, everybody realized that this was mistaken identity. And to make a long story short, it wound up bringing two families together. And this mistaken family, she actually did invite them. They are going to have Thanksgiving at her house. And it's just, just one positive little unimportant thing where some of this technology can create some very unusual uh, end results. Yeah, I saw that same story. It's wonderful. Great yeah, story. Maybe one of the few positive email oopses we're all <laughs> yeah, familiar with. Right. Not so positive right. email oopses. <laughs> Patrick, I, right now your uh, people are using a some kind of a tablet that they're walking around with. What's your view of that becoming in the not-too-distant future a heads-up display where they're wearing a comfortable pair of glasses, but they're seeing those signals on the glasses rather than a, a laptop? Yeah, no, great great question. Uh, Head-mounted displays are, are definitely all the hype going on right now in the in the kind of the AR space. Um, 
Today, my team has fielded 57 different pilot projects into the shipyard, and all 57 have been done on tablet computers. Okay. Part of the reason is twofold. The maturity of head-mounted displays, in my opinion today, is not quite there, but it's getting closer and closer. I used to say, you know, five years, and they'd ask me again the next year, I'd say, that's five years, and they ask me again next year, I'd say, it's five years. Um, I don't say that anymore. Now it's a year or two away. <laughs> They're getting pretty close. Um, part of our challenge, of course, is safety and keeping our people safe. Um, some of the, uh, the gear that's out there um, is mounted to a hard hat. Some of those hard hats um, aren't the kind that we would use. Um, some other displays have sensors that have to project. Um, when I put a, a grinding shield, for instance, uh, in front of it, it doesn't work anymore. And then all displays uh, right. typically will render um, light in front of the user's field of vision perpetually. Um, and to me, that still kind of remains a challenge. Um, the term that we use here at Newport New Shipbuilding to describe what you get with a head-mounted display is a persistent AR where you're augmenting things all the time. And I think that there's some um, misconceptions in the developer community that a skilled craftsman needs to be you know, told, apply wrench here and turn wrench this way, and then they keep animating the wrench on this you know, particular part. I find that our skilled workers have turned that wrench on that part a thousand times. They just need to know they need to do it now. You know, they don't right. need that persistent information projected into their field of view all the time. Um, and because I'm competing with drawings and I'm using a tablet, I can set it down. Right? I set drawings down. I don't hold drawings up inside my field of view all the time to do my work today. Um, I'm not trying to turn everyone into Iron Man. I'm trying to get rid of this enormous amount of paper <laughs> documentation. Right? Um, so I'm, I'm interested in head-mounted displays. Um, I think there's a place for them um, because there are use cases where persistence is helpful. Safety as a positive use case of AR is one of those examples. Can I offer situational alerts to moving parts, um, you know, tag outs for electrical status, things that I want to push to a user? Uh, in those kind of scenarios, I wouldn't want to do that on a tablet because you might not be looking at the thing whereas on a head-mounted display, he would. Um, so there are a subset of use cases that I think are very conducive to head-mounted displays. Um, but right now, it's a matter of, of technical maturity. Um, it's a matter of choosing the right use case for the job. Uh, and then um, um, the fact of the matter, in, in my opinion, is that tablets get you 90% of the way anyway. So, Patrick, let me, again, as an aside, just to get to, get to know you a little bit uh, better, a little bit more. Um, so, do I understand correctly that you might be one of the most notable uh, individuals in the augmented reality world? <laughs> well, I, I don't know about that. Um, uh, I've certainly, I've done a lot of speaking. Um, from my perspective, it's a lot of speaking, so I've been to, to several conferences, and if you YouTube me, you'll find me. Um, one of the things I think that differentiates what we do here at Newport New Shipbuilding, though, is that we're entirely focused on industrial uses of augmented reality. You'll find a lot of folks out there that are doing video games or doing marketing or other uses of the technology. But when you want to talk specifically about using it to build big complex things, um, you know, this is the place. And I think um, I'd put us in the in the, the top ten, sure, probably even the top three or four, um, maybe even higher than that, in the world of, of AR practitioners in industrial spaces. And we've been doing it a long time. We've been doing it for six years. We started in February of 11, so coming up on six years. And um, we've done some things that I think 
I think no one else in the world has done before. Have you found a, a either an improvement in uh, errors or mismanufacturing or time or speed? Yeah, of course, of course. That's and that's why we do it. So maybe I'll tell you a little story. Um, this one um, we we recently published um, in a, um, a journal article, so it's out in the public domain. So I don't mind sharing it. Um, but one of the most mature use cases for augmented reality, from our perspective, is inspection. So making sure that all the pieces and parts on this complex ship are present and accounted for. Um, one of the things that we do when we build a, a large unit uh, is we add temporary structure to that unit when we build it. Call it the plant, and it's basically just a big, you know, a parking lot. And then we lift that that big unit up to about a thousand tons um, into the dry dock to become a big piece of the ship. And to survive the lift, we'll add temporary bracing, temporary structure to make sure that it doesn't rack or deform uh, while we move it and put it into the dry dock. Once all the brother and sister pieces are in the dry dock and the ship starts to take form, you know, and it starts to get stiff on its own, then we'll take all that temporary structure out. Of course, that that Evolution takes months, and so during that time, we're also painting and installing electrical and pipe and ventilation and other things in those compartments, so temporary structure tends to get obscured, tends to get painted, and it starts to look like every other piece of structure. So when our, our most recent ship floated, um, CVN-78, she was a bit overweight, and so which is typical for a shipbuilding. Um, so as part, of our, um, as part of our work, we go and do a survey for temporary structure to assess where it is. Uh, and, and what we should do about it. And uh, when we do that inspection, we take a gigantic stack of structural drawings. So we'll use that third dimension, right? It's a foot thick of paper. And you flip through that page by page, looking for temporary structure callouts. And then you highlight it with your highlighter. And then you go on the ship and you look for it and you see if it's there or not. And of course, it's supposed to be removed. So most of the time, you're looking for things that aren't there. Um, so we thought that would be a good use case for augmented reality. What if I just took the product model that developed that drawing in the first place? So our digital model of the ship into the compartment and overlaid it at full scale in the compartment and then just color coded the temporary structure green and color coded everything else purple and then you just look around for the green things okay that's how the app was was built and how it worked uh, we fielded it for an inspector for a subset of the compartments that he was responsible for and his initial plan was to take 36 hours to perform the inspection for those compartments so that's four and a half days of work that he was planning to go and look for the temporary structure and assess it um, before he had AR. Uh, when we gave him a tablet, we gave him a few minutes of training, and we sent him off to do that same inspection. He completed that 36-hour inspection process in 90 minutes, in an wow. hour and a half, using AR. And because all his time was spent looking through that drawing and highlighting parts and orienting himself in space. And it's so much easier to do that inspection when you're just looking around and you have digital information overlaid. So I use that one that is our as our highest percentage cost takeout, about ninety five percent cost takeout. Um but uh but definitely a big success story here. I I would assume also that it that adds to a safety factor also. Uh you know, less time than a, a worker would have to be in an environment, potentially unsafe environment of ninety minutes instead of thirty six hours. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And the other thing that we found in that inspection, uh, and we uh, it's uh, a bit subjective because the, uh, the inspector had kind of admitted this on a video recording that we took, but um, he claimed that he found pieces of structure that he missed when he reviewed the drawing. So he reviewed the drawing in advance, not trusting that this you know newfangled piece of gear would actually help him do his job. Um, and then he found structure presently present on the ship 
that was tagged as temporary that he missed when he did his highlighting. So he actually mm -hmm. performed a higher quality inspection in addition to a much cheaper and much faster inspection. So we talk about the iron triangle of engineering all the time, right? Cheaper, better, faster, pick any two. Um, and uh, and we broke it. It's not. The, it wasn't the case. We got cheaper, better, and faster, all three. Um, and it's just because, again, we are attacking the non-value-added portion of his work, which is his reliance on that paper to communicate to him what he needed to do. So I imagine that the product augmented reality, as, as it is at Newport News, uh, really is uh, for use in manufacturing of uh, heavy and large uh, uh, items like airplanes or uh, oil rigs or ships, as in your case. Sure, it, it, would, not, it would not be a, a little uh, sewing machine that they would use this on. Maybe. Um, you know, our specialty certainly is in high variability, low production rate manufacturing. Um, there are AR in industrial space got its start in Germany, um, and it was German automotive that started looking at this technology to use on the production line for the opposite, right? So low variability, high rate manufacturing. Um, what we use it for, of course, would be great for big, high cost things, oil rigs, chemical plants, um, nuclear aircraft carriers. Um, and that's because um, a, a worker, a skilled craftsman who has to build something once every seven years, vice 40 times a day, has a different reliance on his information to get his job done. I think. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where AR really shines, is attacking that, that part of the, um, the information transfer. Patrick, I'm just curious. You're an engineer, I'm not. And you mentioned that when you finish a ship, you discover it's a bit overweight. Obviously, this isn't something you can put on the bathroom scale. How do you figure out a nuclear aircraft carrier is <laughs> overweight? Uh, it's uh, Archimedes' principle. So, uh, so the ship displaces uh, as much water as it weighs. So we can tell by its draft how much how much distance between the water line and the keel, um, how much it weighs. It's uh, actually fairly straightforward. You didn't know that, that, Tim. And is that uh, pretty precise in terms of, you know, it's one inch deeper in the water or a half inch deeper in the water? Is yeah. that tight? Yeah, we do we do measure that on inches. Yes, sir. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> naval architecture. Actually, that is my degree. My, I have my bachelor's and master's both in naval architecture. I don't, so that's why I didn't know. That's <laughs> <laughs> why so you're on the radio. Yeah, right. Uh, what's next in, in augmented reality and manufacturing, Patrick? What's next? Well, for, for us, um, it's taking it to scale. Um, so I mentioned that we had 57 projects. All of those I would consider to be demonstration or pilot-level projects where we, we try something and we're, we're not sure what we're going to get and we measure the results. Um, for the first time in, in 2016, Newport New Shipbuilding is, is taking a process um, to full-scale production using AR. It's a hard thing. It's a lot of paperwork and a lot of approvals involved, um, but taking it to scale so that people are using um, augmented reality day in and day out is, is kind of the next thing. Um, of course, you mentioned head-mounted displays, and there's other tracking solutions out there, too, and the, the space is really dynamic, so keeping track of everything uh, and making sure that we've got the latest and greatest incorporated in our process um, is still a full-time job. But, um, yeah, the big one for us is taking it to scale. I don't know if this uh, applies uh, or could apply at some point, 
But over the weekend, I was reading an article, and I unfortunately I don't recall the name of the company. It might have been, um, uh, it might be Apple. They came out with a pair of glasses. They look just like regular glasses, and they have two cameras in them. Yeah, Snapchat. So you can, I'm sorry. It was Snapchat. Yeah, I'm, I'm aware of that. Oh, you are. Uh, just for me to further explain to uh, the audience, where uh, wherever you, you put the glasses on, and if you're going out to the inspection floor and you're going to inspect some goods, you can look at the goods uh, through these glasses, and it's being televised back at a computer. And you know, three of your bosses and two workers are watching this inspection process go on. And it has incredible potential in terms of uh, uh, having to go out into the field and do repair work or um, uh, any kind of uh, – where you need more than two sets of eyes to visually see where there's a particular problem. Uh, it, it is Snapchat that does that? Yeah, that, that particular set of glasses with the, the dual cameras that I think you saw is, is, uh, is yeah. a re recent announcement. But there's many out there, right? There's not uh, it's not just that. And even Google Glass was probably the, the one that had the most hype several years ago. It's now off the market. Microsoft has a new offering, um, and then there are several smaller firms around the country that that make augmented reality style glasses. But the, what you're talking about, we call expert telepresence. Um, but effectively, putting your your um, camera feed onto the a desktop of a remote expert who's not in the field with you. And the power right. of AR, when you tie those two things together, is can that person, that remote expert in an office a thousand miles away, interact with that screen? Can he circle something and say, hey, look at this area over here? Can that then appear in your field of view and allow you to collaborate in a new way? That's where, that's where augmented reality kind of fits in um, with that remote expert, just that VTC, Skype, you know, uh, FaceTime style um, capability. You get a lot out of just being able to have the camera on site, but then sure. can you actually interact with that screen and, and interact with it in a way that uh, that is new and, and innovative and, and take out time and cost. Boy, don't we live in a great time. It's amazing, isn't it? It really is. Patrick, really I'm is. just curious, uh, as I look at uh, destroyers and uh, aircraft carriers and all of the support ships that are out there, uh, and those that are being built today, which have got incredible uh, weaponry uh, above deck um, to, to handle incoming missiles, there's still something out there called a torpedo. Has anything been done to defend against uh, the torpedo attack on exploding uh, ships? <laughs> well, so now you're getting into an area where I can't talk about that on a radio show. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> we won't but, uh, tell anybody. But, uh, yeah, the, what we do to, to protect our sailors and when we put them into harm's way, we go to great lengths to make sure that they're safe. Good. Okay. Well, being, Good that we're talking, being that we're talking about top secret stuff, um, USS Zumwalt, or Zemwalt, did mm -hmm. uh, New, Newport News happen to build that one? We did not. Uh, that was built by Bath Ironworks up in Maine. Um, so at Newport News, we build aircraft carriers and submarines. And that our sister shipyard at um, in Pascagoula, Mississippi, Ingalls Shipbuilding, uh, they built four classes of ships, um, including uh, the Arleigh Burke destroyers, the LPD-17 class, LHAs, and uh, Coast Guard cutters. One of the interesting things about that new destroyer is that one round for the cannon costs $800,000 to fly 75 miles. 
it seems like a little bit of overdue for not a big return. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure about that number, but uh, yeah, that would strike me as quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. So, Patrick, if I uh, if I come to uh, Newport News, can I get a tour of some of this fabulous stuff? Uh, well, post September 11th, that's a little difficult, but uh, you know, yeah, <laughs> if, uh, if if you want to give me a call, we can chat. Now, now, one thing I will offer up um, is if you want to see our AR, we do make our our augmented reality available through a third party um, partner, um, and that partner is based also here in, in Virginia in Williamsburg, and the name of that company is Index AR Solutions, and we have an agreement with them where they have access to the, to our IP. Uh, and they make that uh, available to commercial markets, um, whereas Newport News only works for, for the Navy. So if you're interested in seeing some of our stuff, um, that can be done through Index. I n won't necessarily take you inside the shipyard, um, but I will put an iPad in your hand, and I will put some components in front of you, and you can touch it and see see for yourself how it works. Uh, and Index offers uh, consulting services and, uh, and kind of turnkey applications uh, that my team um, will provide. Okay. That's called Index AR Reality. Index AR Solutions. Solutions. So it's a one on string, indexarsolutions.com. That's correct. Okay. Great. Patrick, we have enjoyed speaking with you on Manufacturing Talk Radio, a lot of interesting things. Thank you for bringing us all up to speed on what AR is and how it's being used. It was my pleasure. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you both. Thank you again, Patrick. Take care now. Bye bye. Bye bye. And we've been speaking with Patrick Ryan, who's an engineering manager with Newport News Shipbuilding, part of Huntington Ingalls Industries. And, Lou, that kind of wraps up our show for this Tuesday. Uh, kind of fascinating topics we had on. Yeah, really. Uh, he, uh, Patrick really knows his stuff about stuff that nobody knows anything about. Yeah, that's uh, right. It's very interesting. And, again, that's uh, indexarsolution.com if you really uh, – want to get a better feel and understanding about the technology. Don't forget, you'll be in an elite group of people of only 15% that knows what AR reality is. It's a great bar joke or bar bet. Because nobody <laughs> in that bar will know what it is, and you will. So on that note, uh, Tim, I flip it back to you. Uh, thanks, uh, everyone. Keep tuning to Manufacturing Talk Radio for kind of the latest and greatest of what's happening in manufacturing. Again, you can listen to any of our shows at mfgtalkradio.com and tune in next Tuesday, same time and channel for Manufacturing Talk Radio. That's a wrap for this week. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.